0: On October 30th, 1826, a small band of Odom arrived at the gates of Tucson. Acting on instructions from Presidio Commander Manuel de León, which in turn had come to him from the governor of Sonora, they had news to report. Recently, the Odom, who lived near the Gila River, had been visited by strangers, white men who claimed to have come to trade with the natives for horses and mules. Though they came from New Mexico... These men were not Mexican. Rather, they were what the Mexican authorities had warned them about, Norteamericanos, or Americans. León quickly informed Mayor Ignacio Pacheco, who shot a letter to the governor. The commander also sent out a subordinate and a small detachment to find and investigate these strangers. But once at the Gila, the soldiers were informed that the Norteamericanos had departed three days earlier. Probably to the Mexicans' dread, the Odom cheerfully reported that the strangers were friendly and had supplied them with gifts. They also passed along a report that the men had come on the advice of Antonio Narbona, the governor of New Mexico himself, who supposedly told them that they could find beaver along the Gila River. State historian Thomas Sheridan identifies the 16-member party as being led by Saren St. Vane and William Shirley Williams. The latter is better known to Arizonans as Old Bill Williams, mainly because he has a river, mountain, and city named after him. However, they were not the first, nor would they be the last party of Norteamericanos crossing through Arizona in search of either Beaver or a route to someplace more inviting. As pressing a concern as that was, however... It would have to take a number to all the other pressing concerns, as citizens in Tucson and Tubac had to figure out what life was going to be like now that they were citizens of this thing called Mexico. As with everything else related to life in the Sonoran Desert, it would not be a smooth or easy process. I'm your host, David Rickhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 16, Life Goes On, for now. Last week, we took a high-level, top-down view of the factors working against Mexico between independence and the Mexican-American War a couple decades later. Now it's time to press rewind while also zooming in to see what the first decade of post-independence meant for those living on the extreme northern periphery of the Pimaria Alta. Just keep in mind those broad historical forces, rapid political change in Mexico City, calls to secularize the missions, lack of funds and supplies making it to the frontier, and the looming threat of the U.S., as they are the backdrop everything is playing out against. However, at first, to paraphrase the immortal words of the Beatles, la 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 la, life went on. Historian James Officer starts off his section of Arizona post independence by noting the installation of new priests at San Javier del Bac and Tumacacri after the current ones both passed away. This is even accompanied by a visit from the Bishop of Sonora on New Year's Day, 1821, so six weeks before Iturbide and Guerrero have announced the plan of Iguala. While at Tumacacri, Bishop Bernardo de Espiritu Santo would give dispensation to the new priest Juan Bautista Esteric to marry two couples. This dispensation was needed because in both cases the bride and groom were closely related enough to not be able to have the church recognize their marriage without special approval. I'm no expert on Catholic ecclesiastical law. But as far as I understand it, it appears approval is needed if the prospective bride and groom are related more closely than second cousins. But analyzing how closely two people are related could be a complicated affair during this time, especially among the elite who tended to intermarry among each other to keep the riffraff out of the bloodline. But in this case, dispensation was given, and the marriages proceeded without issue. Officer also notes that shortly thereafter, another marriage was performed at Tubac between two scions of old Pimaria Alta families, José Romero and María Soledad Saiz. This is interesting only because the couple would have a son, Francisco Romero, a future ranch owner who is the namesake for Romero Road in Tucson on the east side of Interstate 10. But getting back to the marriages at Tumacacri, the priest who performed them, Esteric would not last long. He was reassigned a year later in 1822, ostensibly for health reasons. However, another priest reported to the bishop that the real reason is that Esterich had become involved with a woman in the area. He turned out to be quite the problematic priest, and is said to have carried out another affair at his new posting, and was also found to have embezzled some 1,000 pesos worth of gold and valuables from Tumacacuri. Replacing Estérica at was Father Ramon Liberos, who is noteworthy because under his watch, the church was finally completed, and by the end of 1822, he had celebrated the first mass in the new edifice. This is the church you'll see today if you visit Tumacocri National Historic Park. I've posted some photos from visits I've made over the years under this week's episode at the podcast's website, azhistorypodcast.com. It truly is a grand structure and worth visiting if you are ever down that way. In 2017, a group of entities started a five-year restoration project to preserve the plaster and paint finishes inside the building. But more was certainly going on during this time than marriage and giving away in marriage. In fact, one of the most ambitious moves was the order that came down from the newly installed Emperor Agustin I in Mexico, to follow up on a request from the governor of California. That's right, the government wanted a new, safe mail route linking the Pima Rea Alta to the Pacific coast. Seeing as Anza had now been in his grave for more than 30 years, the job had to fall on new shoulders. Military governor for Sonora, Sinaloa, Colonel Antonio Narbona, who we discussed briefly last week as part of the confusing shuffle of leaders and responsibilities, tapped Captain Jose de Romero of the Tucson Presidio for the job. Setting out from Tucson on June 8, 1823, Romero and the contingent with him would actually reach the California missions in mid-July. The amusing side note to this story is that shortly after they had left, wild rumors reached Tucson's temporary commander, 1st Ensign Antonio Comodoran, that Romero and his party had been wiped out by hostile questions. Commodoran would actually write to the governor of California in September 1823 to request permission to lead a group of soldiers to the far side of the Colorado River to exact some revenge. It's only afterward that he learned Romero and his party were not only not dead, but alive and exploring in California. The Romero expedition would actually last until the winter of 1825-1826, as he was making his way back toward the Colorado in October that year Another force was marching out to greet him. After having ousted the stubborn governor Mariano de Orea, which we talked about last week, General José Figueroa had swung by Tucson and had then headed toward Colorado to greet Romero and his troops. Accompanying him was the new commander of the Tucson Presidio, Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Ignacio Arvisu, who had been posted at the Presidio more than once during the course of his career. Figueroa, Arvisu, and others made it to the Colorado by November 19, 1825, but then had to do an immediate about-face. Word reached Figueroa that the Yaquis in Sonora were planning a revolt, so he set out immediately to squash such a rebellion. During the years that Romero spent going there and back again, Tucson had one important political change happen. The election of its first mayor. Under direction from the state legislature, all the towns in Sonora Sinaloa were to have elections for an alcalde on December 19, 1824. The honor of being named the old pueblo's first mayor fell to Jose de Leon, who took office on January 1, 1825. While the civilian government was now taking shape, civilian settlement was also taking off. Between 1819 and 1831, the number of settlers, that is, anyone who was not a soldier, family member of a soldier, or an Amerindian, rose from 62 to 193. Once you factored in the soldiers and their families, Tucson's total population was 463, according to an 1831 census. Down in Tubac, we were seeing another surge, with the same census showing 303 total residents, not including anyone who was scattered around in tiny ranches or mining operations. Speaking of ranches, the 1820s are also when we see a flurry of activity to claim rangeland in southern Arizona. The frontier elite began using their private capital to claim the best grasslands the Pimaria Alta had to offer. On this they ran Criollo a tough but rangy mixed-breed longhorn cattle that historian Thomas Sheridan says were mostly dismissed as cuernos, cuero y cajones, or horns, hide, and, well, cajones. However, in order to run anything, they had to get land first. We discussed in episode 13 that land grants were given to the Oteros in Tubac, Agustin Ortiz in Eravaca, and even the Odom along the Santa Cruz at Tumacacori, But it's here in the 1820s that we see many more families staking out claims along both the Santa Cruz and San Pedro rivers. In September 1820, Tomás and Ignacio Ortiz, the sons of Agustín Ortiz who had claimed Aravaca, applied for a grant of four sitios, which is roughly four square leagues or 17,000 acres. This grant was approved in December 1821, giving the Ortiz brothers rights to a strip of land stretching from the north end of Tubac to what is today the town of Saurita. They named this new ranch San Ignacio de la Canoa. That might sound familiar to listeners who live along I 19. Yep, we are talking about the origin of the historic Canoa Ranch that sits just south of Green Valley. The ranch, albeit in a much reduced version, It's today overseen by Pima County as part of the larger 4,800-acre Raul M. Grijalva Canoa Ranch Conservation Park. It's still open to the public, and a neat little bit of history if you want to visit. Around this same time, Leon Herreros applied for a similar grant called San Jose de Sunoida, located in what is today Santa Cruz County. Though he would petition in early 1821, have it surveyed in June, and paid for it by November the same year, it would not be until 1825 that he actually received a title for it. Funny enough, historian James Officer says that the paperwork references a 1754 Spanish land law. Shortly thereafter, the state of Occidente, which oversaw Sonora, Sinaloa, decided that it probably should pass its own law about how to distribute land. Around the same time as the Ortiz brothers and Herreros were filing their petitions, we have Lieutenant Ignacio Perez asking for 73,000 acres east of Douglas that extended down into Sonora. Dubbed the San Bernardino Ranch, Perez paid for the land in 1822, but never technically received a title to it. We also find him asking Esteric, the lecherous corrupt priest at Tumacacri for 4,000 cattle to start up his operation. Perez would also stiff the mission on the bill for these, leading Estéric and his successor, Friar Liberos, to go to the lieutenant's family for help. You see, Perez was a member of the extended Elias Gonzalez clan, a rich, powerful extended family across the Pimarea Alta. Anybody who was anybody in the area was likely related to this clan through either blood or marriage. As a bit of a mea culpa, I criminally forgot to mention them when we were discussing prominent families around Tucson back in episode 13. Eventually, clan member Rafael Elias González would step in to secure payments for Perez's cattle. The extended Elias González family would be involved in several other land grants, with members filing three petitions for sites along the San Pedro and its tributaries in 1827. These will be granted, though the title to a couple, including two near St. David and Charleston, would not be granted until the early 1830s. One, applied for by Ignacio Elias Gonzalez and his sister Eulalia, started near the site of Elgin and extended all the way to the San Pedro River. Called Babocomari, the grant was eight sitios, so 3,400 acres. That's twice the size of the original Canoa Ranch, and, according to Officer, contained more land inside present-day Arizona than any other land grant made in the Spanish or Mexican period. Finally, we have the San Rafael de la Zange grant, which covered some of the finest rangeland in Arizona. It sat in the San Rafael Valley between the Patagonia and Huachuca Mountains. The one hiccup with this is that the original petitioner, Manuel Bustillo, actually lost the land when he was outbid at public auction, which for some reason was the final step in the land granting process. So yeah, like that sniper on eBay who got the toaster you wanted, the land eventually went to Ramón Romero on May 15, 1825. However, the title actually was written to quote Ramon Romero and other shareholders, their children, heirs, and successors. Quote. Of course, this title would be problematic later on when people raised the valid point on how exactly they could prove they were a shareholder when their names weren't actually on the title. But with these grants in place, Mexican control was extended more firmly over much of the Santa Cruz and San Pedro river valleys. However, Sheridan makes the point that had the grants come maybe 20 years earlier, under the full protection of the missions and the presidios, these ranches might have flourished. As it was, they had the misfortune of coming right before the disintegration of both those institutions. And that meant there was no one to help when the Apaches eventually came sweeping down again. But since the Elias Gonzalez family didn't have modern history books to tell them they were about to get socked hard on the nose, we'll leave them there, content with their purchases. Because now it's time to turn around and talk about what we started today with. The arrival of the Norteamericanos. As we talked about last week, once merchants had made it to Santa Fe, they found that the rivers and streams of the southwest were alive with beavers. Driven by a centuries-old insatiable market for beaver pelts to make men's hats and other apparel, the presence of these aquatic rodents meant there was money to be made. Trappers poured into New Mexico, and then upward into Colorado and even Utah looking for the so-called hairy banknotes. Those who followed began to look west and south instead of west and north for new trapping grounds. Historian David J. Weber reports that in 1826 alone, 100 different trappers were along the Gila River and its tributaries in southern Arizona. Now, that might sound strange to us today, mainly because the Gila is a dry riverbed the majority of the year. But that's only after a century and a half of irrigation, farming, and dams have drained the river most of its strength. The first trappers described the Gila as, quote, a beautiful clear stream about 30 yards in width, Running over a rocky bottom and filled with fish. End quote. And like the other watersheds in the area, it was teeming with beaver, the same with the Salt River. Though obviously that no longer holds true today, I will note that beaver are actually well distributed in Arizona. A fun news story from March 2019 was about a beaver found napping on an old chair in an SRP canal in the Phoenix area after somehow working his way into the system. I'm serious, look it up. The pictures are adorable. Anyway, the trappers that followed Beaver into Arizona were a motley group, characterized by Sheridan as, quote, a ragtag collection of misfits, adventurers, and businessmen, romanticized by later generations as mountain men. End quote. There was no organization or leadership, but rather they came in waves, trapping and interacting with the natives as much as they dared. There is no firm consensus, as far as I can tell, about who the first trappers to make it into Arizona were. One candidate is Ewing Young, who is supposed to have made a trip in 1824. I say, supposed to, because he kept no journal of his expedition because trapping in Mexican territory was technically illegal, so having written evidence was a bad idea. Young, originally a carpenter from Tennessee, is said by Sheridan to have crisscrossed Arizona more than anyone else. He was reviled by Mexican officials, who thought of him as a smuggler and scoundrel and called him Joaquin Young but he may be the first American to trap along the Salt and Verde rivers, as well as follow the Gila to its mouth. Young would also pioneer a trail from the Verde all the way to California. The other contender for first in Arizona is Sylvester Paddy and his son James. James, all of 20 when he arrived in Santa Fe in 1824, actually wrote an account of his travels. Though undoubtedly exaggerated, his story helps fill in the narrative somewhat. It actually starts with James and others being granted a license to trap along the Gila after the daring rescue of the beautiful daughter of the former governor of New Mexico from raiding Comanches. So you can see why we might want to remain a little skeptical. No matter how it came about, James and Sylvester Paddy received a license to trap along the river they called the Gila. In late 1825, they crossed into Arizona to find, quote, exhilarating prospects when it came to beaver. The group managed to catch 250 that winter while along the San Francisco, Gila, and San Pedro rivers. Patty also gives us extensive, though again, exaggerated descriptions of Arizona, filling his account with bears, panthers, bloodthirsty Indians, wild hogs with giant tusks that were bigger than you could possibly imagine, known to us as Javelina. By April 1826, Patty and his group were back in New Mexico. But their presence hadn't gone unnoticed. After receiving news of the expedition, Governor Simón Elias González —yes, this family really is everywhere— send a reminder to Presidio commanders that they were to send monthly reports of any presence of foreigners on Mexican soil. The Odom were also enlisted in this effort, asked to relay information about any contact they may have had with Norteamericanos, as well as a charge to instruct any foreigners they met to go directly to Tucson to provide identification papers and a destination. As you might imagine, many of these mountain men ignored that last bit. On New Year's Eve 1826, the new mayor of Tucson, Juan Romero, wrote the governor to let him know that a small group of three Norteamericanos had in fact arrived at the gates of Tucson to show their papers. Much more telling is the fact that the Odom had let Tucson know of at least two other companies who had passed along the Gila without stopping at the Presidio. Historian James Officer does point out, though, that the New Year's Eve arrival is probably the first time that anyone in Tucson had ever actually seen a norteamericano. That same winter of 1826-1827, James Paddy was back in Arizona. His father stayed behind in New Mexico to do some mining, but James and a group headed by Frenchman Michel Robidoux would travel up the Gila all its way to its junction with the Salt River. He did observe that, due to extensive trapping since his previous visit, there was, quote, but few beaver remaining. Once along the Salt River, the company made contact with a local native settlement. Patty identifies them as Papawars, but they were most likely what we call today Peeposh, an ally of the Odom that spoke a human language. Things seemed to be going well, but after night fell, the tribe suddenly turned violent and brought their war clubs down on Patty's company. Once again, we only have his exaggerated claims to go off of, but Paddy claims that he, Robodeau, and an unnamed Frenchman were able to get away. Not soon after this massacre, the three survivors stumbled across the camp of Ewing Young. They then led the men back to the native camp and retaliated in kind, killing, again according to Paddy, 110 of them. This is the most deadly encounter between trappers and native tribes that we are aware of, but in general, the natives were always less than welcoming. As they traveled through the Apacheria, Pimeria Alta, and beyond, many of the natives viewed the trappers with suspicion. Sheridan says that the trappers, who are usually well armed and harvested the beavers themselves, must have seemed more like invaders than traitors. Ewing Young was noted for constantly fighting with Apaches and Mojaves in his quest for pelts, so it's no wonder that the default response was often trying to kill them or drive them away. Patty, however, would not be deterred. Further exploration saw his company follow the Gila all the way to the Colorado, and then north and having a violent encounter with Mojaves near the Bill Williams River. He would keep heading north and definitely see the Grand Canyon. Eventually, he would emerge back onto the Great Plains before turning south to return to Santa Fe. Once he got there, he was told his license had been valid for only a previous expedition, therefore all the pelts he had collected this time were deemed to have been illegally obtained and were confiscated by the New Mexican governor. Smarting over this, Patty and his father would try their hand once again, setting out in late 1827 or 1828. Different sources give me different years, so it's hard to make an exact determination. They would ascend up the known path of the Gila and follow it to the Colorado. However, here, luck was against them yet again, as hostile questions stampeded their horses. With few options left, the group made canoes to float down the Colorado, hoping to reach Mexican settlements along the river to the south. Along the way, early state historian James H. McClintock writes that they added to their bountiful harvest of pelts so much that a whole other canoe had to be constructed to hold them. But the Colorado, she is a fickle mistress, with tidal bores near the Gulf of California that are notoriously hard to navigate. The party was forced to beach their canoes. They buried their collection of furs and other materials and set off overland for Mexican settlements in Southern California. Things didn't go so well for them. Mexican authorities took them as invaders, which in fairness they kind of were, and had them imprisoned in San Diego. Paddy recounts that they were treated severely, and he was not even allowed to see his own father, who died during their captivity. Eventually, his skills as an interpreter, and his knowledge of inoculation during an outbreak of smallpox, set the younger Paddy free. He and a small party found the cache of beaver pelts that they had buried alongside the Colorado, but by now they had been ruined by water and were worthless. Over the next year or so, he traveled up and down California and then eventually to Mexico City itself to petition for redress of his losses and grievances, though this would come to nothing. Eventually, in 1830, he would return to the United States without a penny to his name and nothing to show for his years of effort. While trappers were busy along the Salt and the Gila, there were other expeditions starting to encroach on Arizona. In the fall of 1826, a man named Jedediah S. Smith led a group down what he called the Adams River, after President John Quincy Adams, but what we now today know as the Virgin River. They would proceed down the Colorado and then cross into California, eventually making it to the Mission of San Gabriel near Los Angeles. Smith, too, would be incarcerated by Mexican authorities, but ultimately released. He would return to the land of the Mojaves, but early historian Thomas Farish says these now attacked his party at the instigation of Mexicans. Smith lost 10 men and most of his supplies, but managed to escape. Unfortunately, his luck would run out further east when he would be killed by Comanches. McClintock also gives passing reference to a quote-unquote considerable party being led by a Dr. Anderson in 1827 that passed along the Gila on the way to California, He doesn't give any other details besides noting that they were hospitably greeted by the Pima and Maricopa without incident. Sheridan remarks that these original companies, comprised mainly of fur traders, came and went without leaving much more than depleted streams. The heyday of fur trapping was come and gone by 1833, as fashion changed and people began preferring silk to fur. But the trappers were a sign of things to come. With most simply ignoring demands to present passports at Tucson, they highlighted an American attitude of not caring what Mexico claimed to control. Other changes were happening down at Tubac, but not for the better. Ignacio Elias Gonzalez, who served as the commander of the Tubac garrison for nearly a decade, left his post shortly after the church at Tumacocri was completed this would be the last time that the Presidio would be manned by a full complement of soldiers under a high-ranking officer. On November 1st, 1824, so maybe a year after Elias Gonzalez was gone, Apaches made it to the Presidio and stole away a number of horses. In another sign of things to come, Teodoro Arros, who has succeeded Elias Gonzalez, could not pursue after them because, well, there were not enough horses left. The situation becomes even more dire when you realize that the garrison at this point had dwindled to just three soldiers and four militiamen. Widespread Apache attacks will not resume until the end of the 1820s, but already hostile Apaches were being spotted in the area in numbers that hadn't been seen since the 1770s or 1780s. Very much aware of this threat, Mayor Jose de Leon in Tucson was outright furious when he learned of a decision by the state legislature in March 1825 to exempt civilians from paying taxes that went to support local militias. Not that his pretty much justified indignation did him much good. In 1827, León's replacement, Mayor Juan Romero, sent a report to the acting governor where he stated that Tucson was threatened from all sides. The Apaches were reportedly in league with the Papagos and the Yumas, he warned, and the rumor was that they were gathering strength for an attack on Tucson. This supposed coalition never came sweeping down to lay siege to the Presidio, but there is no doubt that Apache raids started heating up again. In 1827 and 1828, raids in the Altar Valley in Sonora caused the abandonment of settlements such as Saric. Romero's successor, Ignacio Sardina, would write to the governor to inform him that an Apache war party had killed three miners in the Sierrita Mountains west of modern Green Valley. The same group then proceeded to raid cattle from all over the Tucson area. In response to these reports, the state of Occidente did create one of those civilian militias we touched on briefly last week. The governor also asked for a report on the situation, to which the political chief for the district of Arispe gave a frank and grim accounting. First and foremost, he highlighted that Tucson was the most isolated outpost on the Mexican frontier. Then he dove into details about how raids on the Presidio's livestock had reduced it so much that not a single person had more than 25 cattle. These were grazed by day, but then had to be guarded at night. There were still some horses, but they had to be kept under constant surveillance. These conditions, the report said, were driving residents into despair. Then there was the problem of water. During the Spanish era, agreements had been made to apportion three-fourths of the Santa Cruz's water to the Pima living in El Pueblito. That meant that there simply was not enough water for Tucson's Mexican population, which had grown while the Pima population had shrunk. Adding to their problems was the fact that raids made it impossible to grow in the Tres Alamos area on the San Pedro River to the east of Tucson. That one area was supplying much of the Presidio's grains and vegetables. Instead, they had to get those from the farmers along the Magdalena River in Sonora. He also expressed his concern that settlers might actually abandon Tucson altogether. He called for 100 muskets to help outfit civilians to defend themselves, in addition to actually keeping a full complement of well-supplied, well-armed soldiers at the Presidio. These, he suggested, needed to be led by a politically savvy commander who would rather quote, sleep with his gun than with his wife, end quote. Despite this report, these problems will only get worse in the coming decades, as we touched on last week. It's during this time that the governor also ordered the expulsion of all Spaniards, in line with commands coming down from the state legislature to obey the federal order of December 20, 1827. You might recall from last week that Mexican xenophobia against the Spanish had reached a fever pitch in the late 1820s. Spain didn't do itself any favors by continuing not to recognize Mexican independence and its half-hearted stab to reconquer the country that we touched on last week also. But you might remember that this order hit the Franciscans particularly hard, especially in the Pimaria Alta, which, remember, covers Arizona and Sonora, where only two priests would be left afterward. One of these two, Friar Rafael Díaz, we talked about last week. He was ousted from San Javier del Bac, but would return after officially becoming a Mexican citizen. But the order meant Friar Ramón Liberos down at Tumacacri would be expelled, and he would never make it back. Dios's departure was also a blow to the Amerindians living at El Pueblito in Tucson. Without a firm white hand to speak for them, it wasn't long before Tucson residents began encroaching on their land and water rights. As is usually the case with these things, sometimes the Mexicans would pay for the land, and by that I mean drastically underpay for it, but more often than not they would simply take it. A civilian administrator oversaw the former Franciscan property and apparently tried to protect the interests of the eight remaining Odom families at El Pueblito, but he was maligned for his efforts and ended up being only marginally successful. We have the record of an 1828 land transaction between Mexicans and the Apache Mansos for a tract of land that ran between the Santa Cruz and what is today Main Avenue north of St. Mary's Road. This land, which included most of Tucson's Barrio Anita, had been parceled out to the Apaches in 1796. They were selling this to Tucson citizen Teodoro Ramirez, but the commander of the Tucson Presidio and Mayor Sardinia conferred with the Apache leaders about the deal to ensure that they were entering into it of their own volition. Finally, they gave their stamp of approval and the land was turned over at the price of two muskets, four zarapes a serape, being the classic Mexican blanket you think of, a horse, 16 pesos of tobacco, and 10 pesos in cash. This doesn't appear to be a selling Manhattan for some beads situation, but it also doesn't seem to be completely fair to the Apaches. Those Apaches, by the way, were also treated to a little sermon where they were told that since they had entered into this deal voluntarily, they had no right to attempt to recover the land. So, as the 1820s came to an end, the mood in the Pimaria Alta was turning south. The Apaches were again raiding in numbers and with a boldness not seen in a generation. At the same time, the flow of goods and cash to support the far-flung settlements were starting to dry up as political instability at the heart of Mexico cut them off. Things will only continue to worsen over the next decade and a half. So, join me next week as we discuss how the Pimaria Alta continues to limp along despite the odds. It would not have an easy go of it, and through it all, officials continued to keep a wary eye on the shadow of those land-hungry, Norte Americanos. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.